episodes. <laughs> one of those episodes that's actually all of those episodes. I was going to say, one of these days we should have an episode that isn't one of those episodes. Not one of those episodes, yeah. <laughs> You know what I was thinking? Actually, this, this reading made me think of um, the Hilary Putnam that we read. And I was mm. like, when would we have read that? And then I was like, that was probably about 80 episodes ago. <laughs> it's like, holy shit, we've done it in just a stupid amount of these Yeah, so yeah I finally realized how many we'd done the other day. I must have a similar experience of just like yeah. 80 or 83 or 84. What is it? I don't know. I think we're on, this might be 86. Uh-huh, I don't know. I feel uh-huh. able to look at it now. Um, and it was funny because when we did the tier listing on YouTube, there were like a couple readings that I just didn't remember at all. And one of them that I just had no recollection of at all was the Ellen Meekson's wood. It was, what was it? It was like classes process and relationship. <laughs> yeah. I still have no recollection of what that was about. I'm sure I like maybe have remembered some stuff if I were to be prompted, but <laughs> no clue. I don't even remember mm. what that was like. Mm. Maybe we both need to go back and read that again. Yeah. Or not? If it wasn't that remarkable to us at the time, and maybe I'll go back and read it again because clearly it would it made an impact that. on me at some level, and then maybe yeah, I'll explain it to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do the same with the first three chapters of Capital. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly that didn't make an impact on us. Uh huh. I thought you were going to say um, whatever that Louis Althusser episode is. No oh, god, uh, essay is. Oh jeez. Let me show what it's called. Anyway. ISAs, RSAs. I just remember the one thing I remember from that episode was you being like, we were talking about the, um, how he's like, and man, have you ever thought about how like the school day is eight hours just like the work day? And you were just like, yeah, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What you get that from? Rage Against the Machine. (laughs) Exactly. Famous structuralists, uh, uh, Rage Against oh, Machine. Well, well. <laughs> Rage Against. There are there are a number of things in my like embarrassing left wing past that I would like like to forget about. Like perhaps you know like Occupy and stuff like that, or just like that general aesthetic around those times. Rage Against the Machine. Something I will always defend. Incredibly cool. Hate yeah. to say it. Sorry. They're wrong. Good music. Good music, folks. Good people too. Um, I think. I hope. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really much about them. I hope they're good people. Everybody's, um, yeah, everybody's in a state of not being cancelled yet. Um, <laughs> but Tom Morello, he's a Star Trek fan. He's in several episodes of Star Trek. So, oh yeah, he is, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was a male stripper, cool. I believe, before he like made it big. Which respect. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Good for yeah. him. What a life. Jeez, I just have like an admin job. <laughs> <laughs> um. I've been reflecting, Dan, on our interview with Jason W. Moore, um, because I believe that was our last episode. Mm -hmm. And um, I just I I don't know if I I kind of just wanted to pause on it again because that was pretty cool. (laughs) You know, that was really cool that we were able to talk to him. And I think very eye opening in a number of respects. Um, And yeah, I don't know. There there have been a couple of things that I've kind of picked out of that that have really kind of given me pause. Um, And I think really just hearing him explain when you were kind of asking him about the kind of subject object relationship and really kind of picking at it, it really made me go, okay, wow. Yeah. This is, this is also really good stuff. And it really made me kind of, well, as much as I've already gone back and gone through, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, capitalism and the web of life. Um, maybe we want to do it again. Really good stuff. I don't know. Have you been thinking about that very much? Um, I, I think I've been thinking about those things, which, he discussed as being his influences or he encouraged us to go and read. And it's sort of like, because it was such, it was so 
I was so grateful that he was willing to come and do it. And um, uh, he clearly such a sort of like eloquent and erudite and um, rambunctious and friendly um, person to have a discussion with. But also I've sort of bowled over with that sort of like um, scope of knowledge and the ability to weave it all together. Um, and that sort of obviously made me want to go off and sort of tap into some of those resources or uh, references, that kind of thing. And also, like, I think also some some of what he did was like um, opened up the possibility for us to reconsider some of those um, readings that we've done in the past, and maybe sort of like encourage us to reconsider um, our opinions, not because they were wrong, but just because there's ways to develop them. Uh, further or we can go back and re-engage certain things that we've touched on so it was kind of nice to like reacquaint and reopen up um, our back catalogue and some of the th things that have influenced us based on cursory readings that we've made um, in a way which was encouraging you know it wasn't like you're wrong it's like the the um, the encouragement to engage in thoughtful um and provocative debate and discussion was something that I received, I think, most fully from that interview. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. I do like when I don't know how to exactly react to him what he said about Ellen Mixon's wood. <laughs> we actually haven't talked about that. Yeah, it's like, what a great political thing. I, I mean, this is what know. I'm skirting around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we could perhaps rethink some of our thinking uh, <laughs> around our praise of Ellen Mixon's wood, dude. It was so funny when he was like. He was like, nobody ever reads Wallerstein and nobody ever actually reads Brenner. And you and I like both looked at each other like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Guilty as charged. Yeah, indeed. What are you going to do? Maybe we can rectify that in time. In time. Yeah. yeah. Actually reading Robert Brenner. For some reason, I always, I always imagine him as like a, a different generation of thinkers. Still alive. Still kicking. Because yeah. yeah. sure what I know. Um, Bob and also, yeah, Bob Brenner, exactly. Also, when he was like, um, and I was like, so what do you, what should we read of Wallerstein? And he was like, what about this tome? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think you've listened to this show, buddy. <laughs> one day, one day. Um, I think, Dan, that that leads us very nicely into what we're talking about today, I guess, because this is all about us trying to understand fully, 100%, get there. We need to understand the dialectic. We're on a kick right now. We need to figure out this whole dialectics thing. Um, I, my dad listened to the uh, Jason W. Moore interview and he was like, yeah, wow, that was really interesting. And then he was like, what is the dialectic? And I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, I made a similar attempt to try and explain it to somebody. And I think it was a very circular thing where I just went round yeah. and round and said synonyms for dialectic and then yeah. left it at that. <laughs> it's the contradictions, man. Come on, it's the contradictions. One thing I will say that I took from the what from what Jason said was um, he was like, well, not everything is dialectical. You can't think of everything as dialectical. He was like, when there's like a, I think he used the example of like a volcano. That's not a dialectical event. That's just a volcano erupting. But then he was like the ways in which it interacts with the local environment and the, you know, various organisms within it. He was like, now that's dialectical. So we're figuring it out. Um, the reading today though, Dan, was actually suggested by two separate listeners, um, as well as coming up in Capitalism in the Web of Life. Um, Jason W. Moore cites it as a big influence. This was suggested by a listener named Sad Dog in our Discord, as well as Will, 
from uh, who you will all know from the episode we put out last week, the mini episode, Agro-Industrial Society, at will, he suggested this. So a bunch of people have said we need to read this. Um, the dialectical biologist, Richard Levins and Richard Lewontin. Um, we read the first section, the first hundred pages. It's three different essays, um, all about evolution. And we've been wanting to talk about evolution for a while and kind of criticisms of Darwin. Um, I think you told me a long time ago, like when we first met, you like told me a little bit about um, kind of Kropotkin's more like mutual aid theories of evolution and stuff like that. And ever since then, I was like, ah, interesting, interesting. This is, this is, I'd like to hear more about this anti-Darwin theories of evolution. Um, but yeah, I'll be, I, okay, we'll get into what we thought of it here in a sec, but um, and maybe how much I understood and how much I didn't, but um, I don't know. Cursory thoughts, what'd you think? I mean, I, I think yeah, we're in a similar position. I I didn't I did enjoy reading it. Um, I think it could have warranted multiple readings through. Um, oh, sure, <laughs> it's definitely very heavy on examples, which um, I guess is certainly what you want, or is certainly certainly what they wanted to provide is a very sort of example rich, very detailed analysis of what they're trying to explain. Um, obviously, my brain is always looking for the sort of like um theoretical underpinnings and sort of like so what i was doing was trying to sort of pass out between the examples to try and work out what the um sort of like constitu continuity of the argument was throughout the section um which i guess we're going to try and make some attempt i'm going to try and make some attempt to oh. um to, to demonstrate my understanding or lack thereof in a minute um but it 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 was um thoroughly enjoyable the thing that i enjoyed most about it was um they are two scientists, two scientists, I don't know that for sure. They're two scientific thinkers. <laughs> They're presenting scientific ideas. They're making a contribution to a scientific literature. But they're, but they're both their, I guess, their commitment to politics, but more importantly, their willingness to synthesize and um, analyze the norms and practices of science from a, through a critical lens which is informed by um a sort of political understanding um and a criticism of ideology was very enjoyable to find right so obviously you find uh political books that are influenced by science but um to have a have a very comprehensive book on a scientific topic that uh, melded uh cautiously but very confidently with a political outlook was um, refreshing for me yeah, I yeah, I would I would agree. It's funny, I was reading some um reviews of this book from when it came out, and a lot of the more kind of like bourgeois reviews kind of had the exact opposite experience that I had with it, where they were like they put forward some really fascinating and extremely compelling radical arguments on the relationship of the organism and its environment and how Darwin might have got this wrong. They were like surprisingly open to that, but then they were like, um, but what they have to say about Darwin's uh, political influences, I don't know how they could possibly say that. And I was just like, I mean, that like I just take for granted. Like, obviously, he was like completely influenced in terms of like bourgeois ideology in the middle of the 19th century. Right. Because the general idea behind that is that these ideas of survival of the fittest and um, even of adaptation to a certain extent and natural selection all kind of have their mirror in bourgeois political economy. Um 
And I, yeah, I mean, I've kind of just taken that for granted forever, especially survival of the fittest. It's like, well, that doesn't necessarily seem right that everything's always in competition with each other, that we're progressing towards like perfect rationality and each step of evolution is, you know, getting towards, you know, perfection or whatever. But, um, you know, very interesting. And obviously we can see, I think, where capitalism and the web of life gets a lot of its um, influence from in reading this. Sure. I mean, this... um this is uh the i think that sort of central thesis of this um first section is all about the mutual interaction between the organism and its environment in a way which is obviously dialectical and doesn't like privilege one over the other um the other, the other thing just quickly on darwin what i sort of feel like this book does um is very similar to what the best books that we've read on marx do which is take him as a thinker in his context with an open theory which is constantly being worked and reworked and admits its mistakes and its gaps um and isn't independent and separate from the thinking of its time but fits into it um so for that kind of like uh, a sort of like i guess intellectual biography of a person um this is also quite an, an interesting uh engagement with a, their thinker i guess yeah, just a bit about like Darwin's family as being, you know, they started as like poor, you know, I don't know, cobblers or whatever, not cobblers, but just like some poor schmucks. And then eventually they became wealthy industrialists. It's like yeah. <laughs> the implication there seems um, uh, kind of anecdotal, not necessarily anecdotal because it is how Darwin was raised and that you could see how this ideology would seep into his thinking. But it's like, I guess maybe it didn't. But it is an interesting parallel to see like how he was raised and the kind of uh, era of bourgeois ideology that he was born into and how that might have seeped into his thinking. It's compelling, even if it might not be true. It, it's correlated, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But also, I think how um, his theories were um, taken up and altered and melded with developing um, political ideological trends and almost came to represent something that wasn't even what he was necessarily promoting at the time. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really work out whether, I don't know whether their take is um, anti-Darwin or anti-Darwinian. Did you, did, was that, was your sense that it was, or uh, was it a, a critical extent. engagement with, I suppose, but not, um, yeah, but more of a I critical mean, it's not engagement like with Darwinism and then evolutionism rather than it was with Darwin itself or the theory of evolution or natural selection or that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, they say something really interesting. I mean, it seems like it is, it's critically engaging with him emphasis on like critically, right? Like they're making pretty heavy criticisms of what he has to say, but they aren't, they don't seem to be anti-Darwin really in any way. And they make a really interesting point towards the end where they say something along the lines of, um, in fact, kind of Darwin's separation of kind of environment and um, and organism and even kind of like gene and organism, you know, genes and organism was kind of necessary in the same way that it was necessary for Newton to separate out all of the different um, forces that he studied, you know, uh, energy, matter, gravity, all of these different things in order so that later on they could be studied and then bought back together in kind of like a very holistic way. Um, you know, with like a theory of relativity or something like that. And in a sense, they're kind of trying to do something similar to what Einstein, Einstein did with um, physics. They're trying to do with biology and specifically with evolutionary biology. They're kind of trying to tie everything back together in this very holistic approach and say, you know, listen here, all of you vulgar Darwinists, 
you might you need to be much more holistic about what you're studying. You can't just study genes and um, hereditary genealogy or whatever when you're studying how uh, organisms um, evolve. You need to study a lot. You need to study ecology. You need to if we're talking about humans, you need to study sociology, anthropology, all of these crazy different things. Um, as a side note, incredibly funny that Richard Dawkins comes. Yes, I was this. just thinking the same thing. Yeah. Really nice that they get a little dig in at uh, Dawkins. I didn't realize really? I didn't realize his book came out so early. That early, nineteen seventy four or something. The selfish gene. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, that was, was nice incredible. They were like, some of like, yeah, come on. They're just like, this guy's a fucking idiot. <laughs> they're like, this guy's the most vul. In a certain extent, right? Like, that's what they're criticizing. They're criticizing vulgar Darwinism. They're not criticizing what Darwin said or anything like this. They're criticizing, although they get into a little bit about like he was kind of pulling a lot from Malthus when he, he was coming up with a lot of this stuff. They're criticizing vulgar Darwinism, which, mm-hmm. yeah, is incredibly funny when it is laid <laughs> out in the way that Dawkins does. I like the phrase that they have. I don't know whether it's one they've created. Um, imminent caricature. Every yeah. theory, every theory involves includes an imminent caricature. Um, I really, I found that enlightening. I found that yeah, really yeah, yeah. It really did do a lot to sort of like solidify that idea of a vulgarization of something in my head. Because obviously, we like people throw around, around the idea of um, uh, vulgar Marxism, um, and this is a sort of. They're describing a vulgarization of Darwinism or their definition of something's imminent caricature is basically just um, people taking a theory and then applying it to everything to an extent where it almost becomes meaningless kind of thing, which is a a general theory that they have about and that general idea that they have about theories is that like they're useful to a certain degree and then you can expand them so far that they sort of like come at the end of every explanation. and to some extent, this is what they're saying has happened with sort of evolution. They sort of expand it outright. They take Darwin has now become um, the figurehead for a kind of evolutionary thinking, which they suggest um, has come to influence most uh, schools of thought um, in a negative way. I suppose they have a negative description of um, what is evolutionism, I guess. Yeah, that idea about the imminent caricature I thought was really, really cool because as you're saying, they basically just say anytime a theory purports to explain everything, it will just become a caricature of itself and it will completely fail to do that. And in vulgar Marxism, you get that, right? Like you get, no, there are modes of production, they go linearly, there are never any contradictions of them existing at the same time and you can explain everything by the base, right? And the superstructure is just everything on top of that. And there's a reason that that doesn't hold up to scrutiny. And um, I think we saw that when we read the um, uh, the book on the French Revolution, right? The Communal, which Jason W. Moore pronounced differently. And I already forgot. I felt like an idiot when I was like, we read the Communal book. And he was like, Communal. 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 <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck. Um, but yeah, I, I found that enlightening. And it, it is the same with, with evolution. Just really quickly to go back to the Dawkins thing. What he's criticized, what they're criticizing there is that... Um, this kind of vulgar Darwinism of natural selection can be taken to this point where everything is able to be explained by genealogy, just genes. And the title of Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, is literally, you know, all about uh, humans are just robots completely controlled by their genes and nothing else uh, influences anything. And it's like, well, what about the environment? What about the co-creation of the environment? What about, you know, all of these different things? Um and it is just very silly. It's so funny that like that just goes to show the like weakening of 
the like complete hollow nature of a lot of bourgeois thought that it's like that's the guy that gets all the airtime. It's like it's just so clearly wrong. <laughs> it's just yeah. it's simple explanation that fits with everything. So they just go, yeah, fuck it, he's the guy. Yeah, how do they describe it? The theory that basically all that exists is genes. It's kind of like, <laughs> and everything everything else we're just sort of subjects to our genes, I guess. Um, to, uh, which I guess is um, uh, a good example of non-dialectical thinking. Yeah, not di. Oh my! I wonder what. <laughs> I wonder what Richard Dawkins would say if you were to be like. We told him you're not being insufficiently dialectical, dialectical Richard Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> that is a cursed situation that I hope I never get. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody get into that. Yeah. Um, so let's let's zoom out a, a little bit because what they're trying to do is explain the dialectical interplay, right? Not just between the organism and its genes, but also between the environment and how all three of these things kind of play off of each other, right? Um, and so I suppose the main reason I kind of wanted to read this was for the theory of evolution, but also to kind of suss out how they describe a relationship to the environment. And it's what you were talking about, right? During the last episode about like, what is the subject object relationship? Something is acting on something because our kind of experience with this stuff is very much, how does capitalism interact with its environment, quote unquote, and kind of trying to come to terms with those uh, ideas of capitalism and nature and nature and capitalism and everything acting through each other. And this was a really interesting, like concrete, um, yeah, it gave me much more of a concrete understanding. They, they have plenty of examples throughout all of this, you know, whether they're talking about like brownie in motion and like little microbes or whether they're talking about like, you know, the ways that like certain birds, uh, you know, use energy. It's all really, really good. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit here where they talk about the environment stuff and how we're supposed to view the environment. They say, evolutionary ecology is not so much the study of changing characteristics of organisms in particular environments as it is the study of changing patterns of response to the environment. But organisms do not respond to, quote unquote, the environment as a whole. Rather, they react to some aspect of the environment. An organism might detect the onset of winter by the shorter days, the lower temperatures, or the deteriorating nutrition. A predator may be detected by its silhouette or odor, a host plant by its shape, odor, or color. Um, and so this is kind of when they're talking a little bit about adaptation. But it's really interesting because they're really placing the emphasis not necessarily on the things themselves of the environment, which we'll go into in a second, why you can't just kind of call something the environment and the object, they're really placing a lot of emphasis on the relationship between the two, which is definitely what we saw when we've been discussing, you know, our kind of like ecology in these recent episodes and about the interplay between social relations and, you know, the like free gifts or whatever. It was really enlightening. Yeah, I had a big, um, a big sort of aha breakthrough moment um, all around this kind of thing of like, what I realized, because we, th we do so much talk about, well, obviously we've talked with and read uh, Jason Moore's book, but also I was thinking about um, uh, the sort of systems theory reading that we've done and the viable systems model reading that we've done. Um, and what I realized in this was you can get very lost, as you say, when you think about the environment. It's one organism and it's in interaction with the environment and you can imagine that environment to be the entirety of the external world, right? Um, but I guess like the viable systems model would tell us, and this book sort of encourages us to think about um, every organism having a specific environment um, and one which they interact with 
in lots of one which interacts with them, but also one that they interact with very heavily. Um, up until a point where, I mean, this this whole I was sort of like obviously the, the third section of this um, this the third chapter of this section that we read is all about the sort of like subject object, um, and ha- and sort of seems to come down on the idea that. Um, well, they end with this very definitive statement on the way in which the the subject, the sort of organism, um, makes a whole series of very deliberate choices. They kind of like affirm the organism as being a subject in a series of particular ways. Um, those ways are all ways in which they engage their environment, whether it's they... Um, they say that the organism like chooses its environment or whether it sort of makes certain modifications to the environment, whether it makes certain modifications to itself to um, adapt and fit into the environment. But that's sort of like uh, focusing in on the organism having a very specific environment um, was uh, maybe a late clarification to me that I should have worked out much sooner, but I was pleased that I finally got to it when I was reading this. Yeah, they call the environment like a way of life. They're like, you can't think of it as like some external thing. It's a way of life. And they use all sorts of examples. And this is something that I'm still kind of trying to understand and come to terms with, but they talk about the way in which the environment and the object or subject or whatever co-create each other. And this is really obvious when you look at capitalism and the globe, right? Like global ecology, Um, you know, global warming, as well as, you know, just running out of fossil fuels going the other way, I suppose. Um, but they talk about, you know, uh, what's an example that they use about like woodpeckers actively altering their environment and the environment, you know, actively setting constraints on what that organism can do. Right. Or, um, even just something as simple as like, you know, any animal setting up a nest or, uh, or something like that. Like the environment is very much constantly being co-determined and the object is being co-determined by its environment. And so in that way, you do have to understand, oh, okay, it is, you kind of have to say it is, and it's, the environment is almost like a, an act. It's like a verb. It's something that's constantly being done, right? And constantly being made. And so when they say it's a way of life, at first, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, like, what are you smoking, man? Sounds pretty good. But then you're like, oh, okay, I kind of understand what they're saying here and why this kind of rubs up against a little bit of the example that we all see in our textbooks of like, uh, you know, the birds on the Galapagos Islands with the, this bird have big beak because of the nut that they had to eat. And this bird have little beak because they just eat the little worms. You know what I mean? Um, it's much more co-created. And I also got the sense that it's a much longer process as well. They talked about, um, you know, like mammals with flippers or something like that. Like this wasn't, if you just think of mammals developing flippers or like birds developing little webbed feet as like this very abrupt thing that they needed to do because the environment was putting pressure on them, you would think about that entire, they would be thinking about it the entirely wrong way because it's very clearly this act where it was like kind of something that was important. You kind of needed to have webbed feet, but over a longer period of time, it became more and more important because they were both being co-determined. And it seems like a little kind of nitpicking thing to say but it does have pretty big implications i suppose no i see yeah it seems really important i guess we're now getting into um sort of engaging the nitty-gritty of um evolution or the way they describe it a little bit but um yeah one of the things that's really is useful for that they say is like um it needs a it needs a small selection pressure 
just to, because obviously you're trying to gauge some kind you're kind of like trying to gauge a big gap between what we experience as two distinct species um and so much of what they're writing about and i don't think i can explain thoroughly and particularly well is <laughs> grappling with the idea of speciation right gap when when does um when does a what 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 they describe as when does a quantitative change become a qualitative one right when does like certain quantitative ad adaptions within a species either certain um sort of morphological or uh genomic changes how, how do you jump from certain qualitative change within an animal to it being a specifically different animal um and you sort of you can imagine natural selection as being this sort of like pressure bearing down um but when they when they talk about some of these adaptations as you say um they imply that it, it's much more of a sort of like low pressure situations which allow for a certain degree of selection which don't create a they maintain a continuity in a species but also open up the possibility for um later sort of like speciation a sort of like process of becoming a different species under certain environmental factors as they develop but like there is this process particular to um the the sort of like reproductive selection pressures on an animal um but it's not as like overbearing and all-consuming as you might imagine it to be because it also requires this sort of much uh this also this sort of engagement with the environment i suppose and um, allowing for enough time and enough engagement for that minimal adaption to be then become important enough to have like greater selection pressures placed upon it i suppose yeah and i also find it interesting where they talk about how every characteristic kind of has that gets developed has additional properties as well and this kind of made me think of say like elephants developing tusks quote unquote for i don't know whatever reason they develop tusks i guess to like ward off predators or because they're just cool or something like that but then that also has the characteristic of like okay, we'll change their feeding habits in certain ways because these massive tusks are in their ways. But then also something is that it makes certain other species, you know, like covet their uh, tusks and that will like radically change um, where they live and how many of them honestly like even exist. Um, and so that's all basically to say that there are unintended consequences of all of these characteristics of adaptation and that it's very difficult if you just think of things as like elephant developed tusks for this reason. Like this is even something that Darwinists would be a little bit like wary of doing as being like, this was developed for this reason. You know, like it's not intentional. That's not really the way evolution works. It's more so like, you know, it, obviously they would say here very holistic and there are many different small selection pressures as you're saying um, that come from this trifecta dialectical trifecta of you know inherited genes and object and um environment dan i've just noticed that for some reason our uh podcasting software has a time limit now i think they changed that you can't just do this all for free so we need to stop recording for a second and then we'll come back here in a second okay. once we've got it all figured out <laughs> all right that was a pain in the ass <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we're back how, how do we seamlessly sip into what we were talking about yeah before? We remember, we remember what we're talking about before. <laughs> i just had to make a new goddamn account on this piece of shit software the neoliberals have gotten involved at this company dan god damn it they've realized oh we can't just let people podcast for free <laughs> unlimited <laughs> all right what are you gonna do focusing back on the dialectical mm. biologist something that's very easy to just drop yourself back into 
I think what I was talking about was that example that they used about um, things developing swimming appendages, whether that's webbed feet for like seagulls or, you know, like a platypus, I guess also has webbed feet, just swimming appendages. You know what I'm talking about. And at one point they said something that really made me think about the kind of Brenner, Meeksons Wood stuff where they said, yet it seems pure mysticism to suppose that swimming was a major problem held out in the eyes of terrestrial ancestors of all of these animals before they actually had to cope with locomotion through a liquid medium. And then they go into talking about what you were saying about these were probably just marginal selection pressures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This made me think a lot about like maybe more historical materialism ideas of transitions between modes and this idea of continuity admits change. Because in the kind of Neo-Smithian stuff that we've talked about before, right, eh, development towards capitalism was always a removal of these fetters, right? And you can definitely see that in elements of kind of Darwin's thinking and just kind of vulgar Darwinism, right? That like, we're progressing towards this perfection and for fish, you know, or maybe I should say for like uh, platypuses, platypuses are a bit of an evolutionary mess, but like for them, you know, being able to get through water quickly was a problem that they needed to solve. And so through evolution, they developed these webbed feet, these kind of gross little webbed feet with, you know, like deadly venom barbs on them. Um, and they solved this problem, boom, bada bing, bada boom. And we can see how that's, you know, as elements of kind of Cartesian thinking, as we've talked about it before, about how there's this environment that is applying these pressures directly onto the platypus. And the platypus is figuring it out through its own gumption. And over time, it develops webbed feet and it solves these problems. And in reality, that's just counterposing the environment, which we'll get into why that might not necessarily be a great classification, and the thing. And that if you do that, you're really missing the, and I'm going to sound like an asshole, the dialectical interplay between these many different forces. And that isn't just as simple as the platypus sat down one day and figured it out, right? Yeah, we've talked, have we talked about this in the past? It's like um, presuming the existence of a problem to which let's say presuming the existence of a problem to which capitalism answers you know kind of thing and then you sort of like read your present conditions back into the past which is exactly what they're accusing um sort of like vulgar darwinists of doing um and they they lay into very specifically um this concept of adaptation right and are sort of suggesting that um and it and it's in darwin right but it's it's even more specifically in the sort of uh, post darwin um vulgar darwinist thinking um, is this real fixation on what is resulting from evolution is a process of adaptation. Creatures are developing adaptations to particular environmental niches kind of thing. And as you say, it's sort of like um, keeping these two worlds apart is keeping the environment um, and the the organism um, separate kind of thing. Um one of the more sort of one of those one of those moments in which their sort of ideological critique um, comes in is around this concept of um, uh, adapt um, adaption and they're sort of criticizing it as being um, having a view of evolution which says evolution is a process of perfection um, and as a a process with a direction that's moving toward some kind of perfected moment um presumably when evolution ceases and everything is held in some kind of homeostatic equilibrium and we've we've um reached some sort of like non-historical post-historical moment where um 
neoliberalism is the dominant political and uh, economic structure of the world. And everybody understands the dialectic and we ascend into like, the neoliberal <laughs> AI. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but like, um, but it's interesting that they, they talk about um, Darwin and they talk about thinkers in um, the 19th century as living in this sort of like post-revolutionary world where um, change is something that they're willing to consider and grapple with. Um, and as we drift into this sort of process of vulgarization of the theory, what we end up with is one which is actually very fixated on um, continuity and stability and um, actually this um, scientific biological process that we that was discovered, this process of evolution, um, what that actually represents is a historical process of stability and calm and a non-changing world kind of thing um one of the interesting things i say about darwin is in actual fact this is something that he really um struggled with because he noticed that there were sort of he, he, he talks about the the eye and he notices that there are these evolutionary um creations they're these creations of the evolutionary process which he sort of wants to describe as sort of perfected in some ways but he's actually really troubled by that notion because he recognizes that that really undermines the theory um, that he's putting forward which is actually really dynamic and constantly changing and uh, a sort of constant um, process um, so that's one of the defenses they offer of Darwin is not really one of the ways in which people have subsequently vulgarized Darwin is that they don't seem to have the trouble that he did when it came to these kind of notions of perfectibility and adaption yeah, what did you make of all of the stuff about this kind of gets into like the ideal type stuff? I was really interested in that. I'd never really come across this idea of the kind of Plato and Aristotle idea of the ideal type, which is that there exists an ideal type of every category of thing on the planet. And that, you know, the purpose of science is to find that ideal type and everything that affects you know, like say there's like a perfect type of human man and we're looking for the perfect human man and everything that makes every other human not perfect is just merely a disturbance and not worthy of scientific study because we're looking for the, you know, the perfect tree, the perfect this, the perfect that. I kind of thought that was a really interesting idea. I was and, hoping they were going to offer some kind of defense of that because <laughs> yeah. my, uh, <laughs> for some reason, my brain or my uh, personal psychology always has, sort of appeals finds appealing the notion of uh, yeah, the platonic ideal of things. <laughs> yeah. Well, then then they get into saying that Darwin was kind of reacting against that, I suppose, a little bit. Although you can still see elements of this idea of the ideal type and what we've been talking about. So they said, and I'm still kind of trying to come to terms with this. They say that Darwin's intellectual revolution lay not in his theory that organisms evolved, since that was already widely believed, but in his rejection of the Platonic Aristotelian idealism and his total reorientation of the problematic of evolution. And they go on to say he replaced the ideal entities, species, with the actual material entities, individuals, and populations as the proper objects of study. Darwin's revolutionary insight was that the differences among species um, that the differences among individuals within a species are converted into the differences among species in space and time. The problematic of this evolutionary theory then became and still remains trying to figure out uh, the mechanism for this transformation. So that is all really interesting just in terms of like the ways he's reacting against older theories of thought and the ways that this kind of parallels the bourgeois intellectual revolution as well. Um, 
And again, this is kind of one of the moments where they're like, we're not trying to dump all over Darwin. This is kind of one of the moments where you see this was kind of a necessary step in understanding the ways that this stuff all actually works. Like Darwin had to break everything apart, look at the individuals um, as the prime movers of everything and the different populations that they exist within um, to really put them all back together in this holistic way. As a side note, I really loved, was it Lamarck's theory of evolution? I'd never come across that before. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent so long rereading that section and trying to be like, what is it he's actually saying here that this is how things evolved? I was like, there's no way it's as stupid as what I think it is. <laughs> it actually was as stupid as I thought it was. It's like, clearly giraffes have longer necks because they keep trying to reach higher leaves on trees. And during their lives, they get longer necks because they're stretching them out. And then when they have kids, their kids have longer necks. It's like, yeah, I don't, wait, I, I, yeah I don't know whether the specific giraffes are going to get longer necks through the effort, but I think there's presumably some kind of biological process within the giraffe that recognizes that it's struggling. And then so when it procreates, there is some kind of process which um, naturally creates offspring with longer necks to um, fulfill the requirements that they're. Um, parents struggled with, I guess. Turn on um, the long neck gene. Yeah, <laughs> but this is what this is one of the, the like. Um, this was real. This was a really, really interesting section to me. Or part of this was that um, how it was how they demonstrate in this assessment of this intellectual development. How they're sort of demonstrating how Darwin was taking things from the sort of evolutionary thinkers of his day. He wasn't the um, originator of this theory of evolution he didn't sort of stand totally outside of the intellectual tradition um but rather what he recognized was that um well they describe it as a difference between a transformational theory and a variation theory so like um the transformational would be this sort of lamarckian approach which says there is something happening to every member of this species and by virtue of the fact that that species is suffering this thing, whatever it is, it leads to this process of change in future um, generations. Whereas what um, Darwin sees is um, the specific individuals of a species. There is some. There is. It's not that. It's not that all giraffes are alike, but it, that there is there is variation within the body of a species. Um, which allows for into uh, sort of like independent development um over over long periods of time kind of thing and the suggestion that like the it's in some ways this comes back to the qualitative and quantitative right that like there is this sort of like ontological relationship between a species and the sort of individual members of that species like uh the changes that happen to the members of the species determine what's going to happen to this, this sort of species in future generations kind of thing. as his unique contribution that was good okay. yeah 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 and again this is all the thing that really interested me about all of this is the ways that all of this was all of these things are influenced by the environment and one thing that i thought was very interesting was again this dialectical interplay between like organisms actually decide what their environments are to a certain extent right because it's like to a woodpecker you know like the tree is its environment or whatever but like the lake and eh, maybe not so much that's not necessarily something it really cares about or the hedgehog doesn't really care about the canopy so organisms kind of individually choose what selection pressers are kind of placed upon them but then to a certain extent the environment also decides well no this is actually kind of your environment whether there's like a massive flood or a tree falls over or all of these different things um 
and that it isn't as simple as just saying as maybe darwinists would say like no it's entirely all about these selection pressures they're like determining every single thing about the um the organism again it comes back to this really interesting idea just about the the relationship between the environment and not but then again like even using the word environment it's very difficult because it's like you know the the hedgehog is part of the environment to what it views as its environment right like the tree you know which has like squirrels burrowing it or in it or something that's very much its environment and for the squirrels the tree is its environment so to a certain extent they're also they're maybe even reacting against a concept of environment at all or at least a concept of external obviously you need to have some kind of boundaries within your systems otherwise you're just gonna be like it's all one big thing man and not really get anything done but um it is all quite interesting um what else do we have to say on the kind of evolution stuff um do you think well there was this really i think we should come back to this because it kind of relates very much to what we were talking about with jason last week um is there's this emphasis on um, what Darwin is doing as being um, an analysis of historical forces and sort of um, the interaction of an organism and with its environment and crucially through history over time um, is the most important thing. And there's this really lovely um, uh, quote that I sort of wrote out, which is that... um, what appears i suppose as um static variation in space so you have like if you take one snapshot of a moment you don't seem you don't see a dynamic process you see um a, a certain quantity of static variation but it's only when um you add in sort of time that it becomes this sort of like dynamic process i mean one of the things that um seems to be missing from all of the theories that they're critiquing i suppose is this sort of like um aspect of time as being central to um darwin's thinking it's another thing to um sort of accolade to give to what darwin was darwin was doing was to like um sort of like put this in the context of uh deep time i suppose yeah and i mean i guess that gets us into talking a little bit about just adaptation in general um there's, there's so much in these three essays that could be applied to, I think, anything that we've talked about. Um, we've touched briefly about how it can be, you know, put into like historical context and historiography and the ways in which we study history, especially how it kind of jives a little bit with the kind of Brennerist stuff. The thing that I was thinking most about, though, throughout all of this, and especially when they were talking about adaptation, was systems theory. And specifically, like you said, Stafford Beards and the viable system model is like very, very... Um, uh, it works very well with what they're talking about here. And one thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently is when we've been trying to come to terms with this question of environment versus object, right, um, is the way in which the little simplified model of the VSM kind of just completely solves this, right? Because in the simplified model, you have the little diamond up top, which is the meta system. Then you have operations. And then on the left, you have the environment. And there's this really interesting interplay where he's like, if you want to actually have a viable system, you need to have operations monitoring the environment. You need to understand your environment and you need to also have the meta system be responding to the environment. And so in this reading, Lawton's and Levin put forward three things that they say makes a system adaptive. And I was just like, oh, this is straight out of the viable system model. And it's probably reversed. Although I, when was this written? 79? Maybe not. I don't know. They're on oh, the same stuff. I think 85. Oh, no. oh, is it? Yeah, well, oh, okay. at any rate, 
85. Yeah, you're right. At any rate, uh, they jive together very well. And the three things that I wrote down where they're like, this is what you need to have an adaptive system. And I think this could be definitely used in political organizing is they say you need an information capturing system. You need a response system, but you also need something that's interpreting the environment. Right. And so I kind of, I was thinking a lot about like, well, how could you group those things together in something like the viable system model? And I was thinking, well, the information capturing system, those are kind of all over the place. It's kind of everything but systems two and three, right? Because it's operations and it's the meta system is basically what I'm saying. Because one of the main points to what he says, it's a fucking goddamn cop going by again. Hang on. And we're just cursed with this recording. <laughs> one of the things that beer makes abundantly clear is that your operation system needs to be constantly monitoring its environment and interacting with it, right? Um, so if you're running like a political party and you have little mutual aid subsystem operation things, they're constantly engaging with the community. They're constantly doing all of this and they're monitoring people's needs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you also have a meta system that is doing the same thing, but for the purpose of responding to future like perturbations, right? So I was like, okay, that system's one, four, and five. And it's kind of the same thing with interpretation of the environment. Although I suppose that's a little bit more just a meta system thing. You need to be interpreting your environment, but that's kind of just left up to the meta system. Operations is just kind of responding to like the here and now, you know what I mean? But then the response system, I was like, oh, well, that's cool. That system's two and three, right? Like you need these three things, right? You need information capturing, interpretation, and a response system. And I was just like, wow, all of these things are like perfectly encapsulated in the viable system model. And, it, and they're just things that are completely missing from political organizing or just, you know, I don't know, just organizing in general, right? You know, it's so interesting to me seeing a like biological basis for all of this stuff beyond what beer says which is just like you see the human body is a viable system and you go whoa and he goes the cell is too and you go whoa mm -hmm. like actually seeing like a biological explanation for all of this stuff really blew my mind and really made me think to like the um what's the word the like the the goodness of what beer was doing right it, it seems to make a lot of sense in which you know these are the ways that systems in the real world adapt. And these are the three things that they need. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, there you go. We need to be thinking probably more about, you know, the ways we interact with our environment and how we actually even separate ourselves from the environment. If that's such a thing, we're supposed to be creating a working class party. You probably can't, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it also ties into the way in which beer was kind of trying to put forward like an explanation for autonomy as well um from a systems three perspective and not like from a political perspective and they're putting forward a theory of autonomy here from like a biological perspective which kind of blew my mind but one that like wasn't necessarily just fully in favor of autonomy and they kind of talk a little bit about coupling and about coupling of different parts and uncoupling and decoupling and all these different things and so they say that species with very tight coupling with very tight coupling are unable to adapt as readily as those in which different fitness components are more autonomous. Um, and they go, blah, 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 blah. Therefore, what has taken place in evolution is the successful coupling and uncoupling of parts as the advantages of coordinated functioning and mutual regulation oppose the disadvantages of excessive constraint and vulnerability. There's no general rule as to which is better though. Among the most abundant organisms are mammals with tight integration and plants which have greater autonomy of parts. And this was kind of something from a systems theory's perspective that I'd never really thought about before, about like ways in which systems might need to couple and decouple autonomy. So say in times of organizing when things are kind of just like relatively normal, the meta system is just humming along and it's letting operations just do its thing. And it might sense further perturbations down the line. 
but when it does it kind of allows for this like okay everything needs to tighten up and maybe have slightly maybe i'm misreading this but maybe having slightly more of like a centralized attitude towards things um is interesting and i thought it was interesting how they didn't necessarily come down in a biological perspective of which was better and which one wasn't they just go well you know you see both and sometimes things change and sometimes these different systems, you know, will have much more autonomy and sometimes they won't. And then they just kind of leave it there. I kind of wanted a little bit more from that, but I guess you kind of can't because, you know, in the natural world, you see both and you kind of can't really make a value judgment as to which is better. Right. I really thought that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. So are you talking about the, the um, autonomy of um, species as they engage their environment or the autonomy of um, I think the autonomy of certain, different parts, I suppose. So different, I suppose that could apply to many things, couldn't it? The different aspects of the species or uh, even just even different parts or appendages or uh, organs of the organism. Yeah, and I suppose just the different ways that it interacts with the environment, right? Because like I said, at the at the best of times, you would want the operational centers of things to just kind of be doing their own things. And they are interacting with their environment. They know best. This is the shop floor. Everything's going on. Let them interact with it. But then there are certain times where you kind of need to tighten things up and be like, oh, you know, there's going to be a CIA back trucker strike or something in this part <laughs> of Chile. And you need to kind of tighten things up and go, OK, just listen to the auditors, listen to these people, listen to the meta system, and then we'll get back to the way things should be. So I suppose when we're thinking about building organizations, we need to be thinking about ways in which you can do that and ways in which you can do that without staying, you know, coupled and staying very um, non-autonomous, right? If that makes any sense, because you wouldn't want to just have this moment where, okay, things need to tighten up and then just like never let go of that power. Like there needs to be some kind of counter check. Yeah. The question of how do you, how do you go back to the more autonomous relationship afterwards? Yeah. And how do you get people to trust you? to even do that in the first place, right? It's like, how do you kind of remove a certain amount of autonomy? I suppose just with like, you know, being open about things. Yeah, yeah, but it's also about um, the very, the sort of like um, the democratic or the liberatory potential of what's being offered by the viable system model is it allows for um, a sort of like takeover by higher levels of management or other um, structures without them necessarily being dictatorial or um, authoritarian, I suppose. Like there is, there is a command structure built in that doesn't default toward that. If it was being implemented um, as intended, I suppose. But I guess you, it would be a valid concern to say, well, um, surely it's possible for an authoritarian takeover to happen at the point where. Um, some higher system intervenes, I guess. Um, but also, like, but also as, as much as possible, if the request for aid is coming from below, um, you sort of you have to one. I guess one of the things that the viable system model does is create the environment or potentially create the circumstances. If we're talking inside of an organization now or inside of a sort of like um, a human system, it sort of creates the the scenario whereby the sort of like the aldergonic algesonic pain signal can go out and request that aid kind of thing so it doesn't have to be a and that's an integral part of the response structure of the system yeah yeah i don't know it's just kind of like cursory thoughts on all of that because again they don't really go into like making a judgment on like a an argument for autonomy or an argument against it um but yeah i mean it's yeah i guess it's 
I guess it's hard. Um, again, I, I mean, it's the then you're coming down on the side of um, one one um, half of the equation being the subject and one half of the equation being purely the position of being the object. You know, whereas um, that that I mean that would be a that would be pure autonomy, would it? Or if you were if you were the object in all situations, you had total control over your environment, but sort of the the whole question of a uh, of a viable system is creating the circumstances to respond sufficiently well to an ever adapting environment um and not to sort of like dominate it and even to recognize that it is like co-creative i suppose i guess i guess that is a, an interesting question to take away from this like um how to if you could consciously incorporate that idea of um a creative engagement with your environment into the viable system model, which I, I guess is what you were saying before, right? You've got to have this relationship to your environment. Um, and how do you develop that sort of like, um, uh, sort of like, yeah, uh, mutual creative process or foster it or yeah. what have you? Yeah, I think, well, that's a huge part of it, I think. And coming back to like the biology of it all, when they're talking about like, seemingly like small pressures being placed like marginal pressures being placed upon an organism or a species as you know well maybe not as a whole but like on these different organisms and that leading to a kind of change that uh you know like we talk about like webbed feet and stuff like that i suppose how necessarily would you build a human system that would be able to be that creative and be able to adapt in a certain way without just losing all organizational coherency right like you wouldn't necessarily want an organization that just keeps its ideology and its organizational structure 100% no matter what. Like you would want something that is able to adapt to these um, like different pressures and these different, you know, perturbations in the environment, quote unquote, that it comes across in such a way that it's able to come out stronger and, uh, you know, not just be left selling newspapers on the high street. Or, or go extinct. <laughs> or yeah, exactly. Or go extinct. What do you make I mean, of them? I guess there. Is, I guess. I guess there. Is, yeah, go on. You, you I was going to say, what do you make of them talking about extinction? Because at one point they were just kind of very abruptly, where they're like, "Yeah, everything just goes extinct." <laughs> I was like, yeah. "Wait a minute." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, but that's that's that comes down to a question of like, what level in which do you see these things? Like, obviously, we have these independent species, but they're all um, at the same time. I don't know, maybe I was about to go off the sort of like woo-woo hippie. I was about to say. They, <laughs> they are sort of all connected to one sort of like um, life process, one sort of like, uh, yeah, environmental, biological life process, I suppose. And uh, yeah, is species, what is, spe I guess, what is species ex extinction, right? We think of it as being a, a catastrophic thing, but um, the sort of like the, the, the sort of extinction aspect of what's happening but also the sort of like speciation, separation, creation aspect of what's happening are actually two interconnected things, right? Like the environment is determining what needs to happen uh, or the environment is influencing what's going to happen with these various species. And some species just aren't going to be able to uh, manage anymore. But um, internal to some of those species, there will be unique variations that lead to speciation and change kind of thing. But it did just, as you were talking then, it did sort of inspire me to think, well, yeah, there is a point in which an organization ceases to be non-viable, I suppose, because 
um, the conditions that, that it's set, maybe like the conditions that it's even setting for its viability have changed. Um, but out of that process, there is, I don't know, a new, uh, there is a new party, there is a new organization, there is a new development of theory after it's become um, a sort of like stale and what have you. Yeah. Um, and when, when Jason was talking a lot about like the left being unable to um, have an answer to Jared Diamond, right, and his ideas of just like complete environmental determinism, it's sometimes though it's like yeah meteor crashes into the planet and it basically kills everything <laughs> it's like that's a pretty abrupt death, you know what i'm saying yeah like yeah. mass extinction events, yeah, i mean maybe, I don't know. maybe maybe yeah maybe we'll just be hit by a gamma ray burst tomorrow yeah. and the atmosphere will be gone no one can only hope. if only yeah. <laughs> yeah all right this like yeah i don't know this book um especially toward the end of the third essay we were kind of talking about this before the first essay, when I first read it, I was like, oh, God, I don't know what I got from that. I'm going to keep going. And then when I went back and kind of re-went through it and made notes, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, there is kind of quite a bit in this, and I do understand it. But towards the end, there's so much in this that, like, towards the end of the third essay, when they start talking about the ways genes actually function and criticizing, like, Richard Dawkins, and even, like, all I know about genes and inheritance comes from, like, what you learn in ninth grade about Gregor Mendel's P experiments. And when they were like, Oh, he was actually completely failed to a certain extent. I was like, Oh, and I would like, they start explaining how genes actually worked. And I was just like, I'm going to have to, I'll take your word on this one. There's quite a bit. Here that I just, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to understand. What am I going to do? Go and get a degree in biology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I suppose this is why people tout the dialectic, right? And they tout dialectical thinking in certain circumstances, because you know, just in going through this and discussing it with you, like we've come across different ways that this could be applied to history and that this could be applied to systems theory. I mean, this is basically just systems theory, the ways that this could be applied to like any number of different things. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's very much worth reading. And there's so much in this that like, I feel like if we were to go back and reread it, we could probably do another episode just on the exact same three things it's for things that we haven't it. mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, very, very, very good. I know that the mm -hmm. the third part of this specifically, they talk a lot more about philosophy of science and stuff, which I'm interested in. But um, I just like this for ammunition, being able to make fun of people who like Richard Dawkins again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and also what's sort of commendable about this, I think, is they actually don't use the word dialectic almost at all. It's true. <laughs> so you never have to come across that word and be like be called out on your <laughs> or i didn't feel called out on my lack of understanding i felt called out on my lack of understanding for a number of oh, other but I've, I've numerous other things <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. i think if there are some things i'd like to go back and really rethink it is that idea of them talking about not necessarily they're criticizing darwin but they're also not criticizing him i know that this is something that i've already said but this idea of him doing what needed to be done in an analogous way to Newton with physics, I really found fascinating. And, um, you know, my understanding of physics is, is worse than my understanding of biology, but to a certain under, to a certain extent, I do understand that, you know, the theory of relativity kind of tried to bring back, uh, this holistic understanding of the difference quote unquote, between matter and energy and being like the same manifestation or the different manifestations of the same thing. And to a certain extent, I suppose that's kind of what they're trying to do with the subject object environment genes and organism. Um, and also just kind of ponder a little bit more about the, 
potential applications of all of this stuff to political organizing and systems theory because like when we read that Maturana and Varela stuff it was very much like this just feels hippy dippy to a certain extent just just feels like you're saying we can take systems organization for human systems from biology and beer does this as well you know where it's like oh we we can just take understanding of human systems from you know the human body it's like can we like why like why is that why does that necessarily follow and this kind of explains to a certain extent, even without talking about stuff like that, why it makes sense. Adaptive systems, you know, yeah. here are the criteria. Yeah, I think my my big sort of stumbling block at the moment is to, is the application of this to sort of human systems is that the degree to which there is, maybe one of the big problems I had and might like to go re back and rethink is all of the times they talk about sort of like choice, organize, organism choosing, choosing or um having a sort of creative hand in the process of environment formation, I suppose. Um, how much to see that as like a fully conscious decision process in this context, it's not really at all. Um, and then how much to apply that to um, uh, sort of like human organizations and human systems. Um, they do do some they, there are some sections of this where they do talk about some of the uniquenesses of like human beings as a species and um, the impact of um, sort of like cultural development and how those things have become part of um, our sort of evolutionary process I think so it'd be quite nice to go back and retouch some of those things in the future as well yeah this this might have needed more than my like last three days frantically trying to be like you know make notes <laughs> you need to be able to I talk mean, about this I mean, that's what we do, right? We'll <laughs> we'll just come back and do this again some other time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. When we come back to explain Lysenkoism. Yeah, well, yeah, which we really must do. All Marxists must have a position on Lysenkoism. We must. We must. Um, again, I feel like there are some things that we haven't bought up, but again, that's just kind of the way of it. Um, so yeah, yeah, I guess we'll just leave it at that. Uh what actually one thing that i thought was interesting was that last week or two weeks ago jason said we need to dialectics is the study when he was criticizing like formalist scholars right like communal and you know these people are too formalist they care about exactly the exact day and the exact farm that capitalism began on which i was like oh don't look at me i would also like to know the exact second and farm that capitalism began on <laughs> um but he was like dialectics is the study of becoming right in this they also they almost make it seem like that was darwin's um uh, uh, stance, which I thought was really interesting. But I mean, again, it's not like they're saying throw evolution out the window. You tell me I came from a monkey, like they're taking the good things from Darwin and like moving on. So, you know, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, yeah, there we go. All it took was us making two accounts on this goddamn podcasting software. <laughs> And we thought, I mean, we thought we'd found the perfect way to podcast. You know, I know. Like it was working so well. It sounds fine. There's no like latency problems. Like, yeah. Zencaster um, is like, we put all our money in Silicon Valley Bank. Now we need to start charging people. Yeah, we need to start charging because how much is a membership? No, we, we're not going to yeah, do that. We're not doing that. I would much rather create new email addresses every time we every... get recorded. <laughs> yeah, simple and easy. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, uh, last thing, everybody go listen to the uh, essay that we're putting out, Will's essay, Agro-Industrial Society and Its Future. We're going to be putting those out on the every other week. So like kind of the weeks in between when we do main episodes, it'll probably be like three or four. 
if I had to guess, episodes. Um, it's really, really fantastic. And it touches on a lot of this stuff. And he very clearly understands this book a lot better than we do. So uh, <laughs> once we get to the parts where he starts talking about Lawton and Levins, um, listen to that, because it is really, really good stuff all about food systems. So um, do that and read this book. Tell us what we got wrong. And um, again, thank you to the people that suggested this book. Um, because yeah, again, double listener suggestion. And we actually did it for once. So that's cool. That's how it works. If two independent people uh, yeah. suggest it. <laughs> Tell your friends. <laughs> you all have to be following us on Twitter. Otherwise, it won't work. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, Dan. This was uh, very enjoyable. And um, yeah, we'll see everybody next time. Yes. Speak to you again. <laughs>